0: I'm Roland.
1: Ryan Chenke is a developer advocate at Prisma. Welcome to the show, Ryan.
0: Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for the invite.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you. We've had Jason, your colleague from Prisma on as well. And what's funny is I would actually reached out to you. So I saw you were doing some Nexus talks. So I was like, we really want to know more about Nexus. And you're like, oh yeah, sure, but um, really, you should get Jason on. And it was great. That That was such a fantastic episode. So thank you for that recommendation. And now we're here to have you on to talk about the stuff you're working on. But first, let's get a little bit of your background. How'd you get into programming and how'd you find your way to Prisma?
0: Sure, yeah. I have been in programming now for, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I um, I guess this is like year nine, sort of, because I, like my very first touch with programming in its current form um, was back in like 2012. But it, like that's when I just like was a super noob and I just got into HTML and CSS um, a little bit haphazardly you know I started and stopped a couple times trying out just some basic web development stuff and then over the next few years I, I started to to learn it more thoroughly. Uh, I but but I've been working in the industry since 2015. Uh, my first job was in 2015 with auth zero um, doing some kind of Devrel type stuff with them. But since then, you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff. I, I've uh, worked as a consultant um, doing, doing application builds for companies and um, I've, I've created a lot of content. I've got a lot of courses out uh, and yeah, working uh, at Prisma now. So, so yeah, lo- I've touched a lot of different areas, I suppose, of programming and I, I've been at it, I suppose, career-wise, job-wise for, I guess this is like the sixth year, even though I've sort of been touching it for at least eight or nine years now.
1: Oh, wow, that's cool. That's actually not as long as, as I would have been expecting. That's that's pretty cool. You've you've made it pretty far in a in a pretty short amount of time, so congrats on that. I'm in a similar boat. I'm you know, just getting started with my, my professional journey now, but I've been kinda of learning to code for, for a couple of years now, so it's always cool when I see someone who hasn't been at this like since they were just just a kid who's still been able to to be pretty successful. And you had worked at Auth0 before Prisma, right?
0: Yep, Yeah. Auth0 from 2015 to 2017. And then I went out on my own, did some consulting and and basically spent a couple of years, I guess it was like two and a half years or whatever, building apps for companies and doing kind of like freelance, I guess you could call it, uh, consulting stuff, had a good number of clients. And then I was interested in going back to work at a company because um, one thing that's really, not great about going out on your own is that you you're no longer surrounded by a team of like really smart developers to help you get better and push yourself to to learn more and stuff like that and and so what i really noticed is that my learning really started to plateau as i was out of my own i was just kind of you know single developer working on stuff and and having a lot of fun but it, my learning was really plateauing i was not learning new stuff i was not Developing myself as a as a, a programmer as much anymore. So I wanted to get back into the realm of you know a team that was super talented and and would would kind of push me to excel.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I definitely feel that. For me, I couldn't really learn anything on my own. It wasn't really until I started getting together with like some of the Redwood people that I started like really getting to accelerate. And so that's definitely a, a huge thing that you need. You need these people around you who are constantly pushing you and just be like, Hey, let's go work on this project. Like, well, I don't know how to do that project. Like, well, let's figure it out then. And then, you know, you get to work through it with people. And so he's, so he's super, super fun. And how did you first hear about Prisma? Did they reach out to you or did you hear about them?
0: You know, so it, I, I've known, um, Johannes for, for a long time, I guess since 2016, he, back when, in the graph cool days, when they were getting started, that's when I was at All 0 and how did. That go. He had reached out to me, or some, he had reached out maybe to Ossio more broadly and, and got filtered down to me, I think, about doing some kind of collaboration on content and, and whatnot. And then I, I would see him at GraphQL events, I guess, every year, basically. So he and I knew each other for a while, and he reached out to me to, to ask me, basically, if I, if I would have any interest in. And coming to work at Prisma. And that was, you know, that was for a little while before I, I made the decision to to go back to a company after consulting for a while. And so it took a, it took a little bit of convincing, but it was very much the case that like, if I was going to make a, a jump back to it, the Prisma was the right spot to go. Like, I, I really love what the company's doing. I love the open source nature of it. Uh, the product is great. The people are awesome. So it made a lot of sense. And so he was able to stronger me into to, uh, to come and to work at Prisma. And that is, uh. That, that was last year, yeah. Now we're in twenty twenty one. So that was twenty twenty. That was like, I guess, the spring of twenty twenty, and uh, and then I started there in July. That was my kind of official start. Was the beginning of July last year.
1: Yeah, that makes sense because you had spoken for a Redwood meetup actually, and this was towards the end of it was like September or October, I think, and you had been working there for about three months or so. So yeah, that that all that all tracks. And and what you did that I thought was really cool is you did a demonstration of how to do relations with Prisma. And what I thought was cool about that is that you didn't just kind of like show up and just like do any old demo. You really like picked a specific demo that you knew was a pain point with Redwood developers and something that we would be interested in seeing and learning. And I thought it was really cool. I thought it was like very thoughtful and you didn't just like go and do say, like, oh, I just wanna go show you some, some Prisma stuff. And I think that shows the kind of thoughtfulness that a good developer advocate has, because we've talked about like the role of a developer advocate, what exactly it means, whether it's more community, whether it's more content creation, whether it's more tooling, whether it's a combination of all of them. So, how do you think about that role and what your responsibilities are?
0: Yeah, it's and I appreciate the comments. Thank you. Uh, it's an interesting role because you're uh, you've got a lot of hats that you've got to wear as a developer advocate, right? There's of course the need to you know to be proficient in in programming to some extent um maybe arguably you you don't have to be the the most super talented of engineers um (laughs) working on like super obscure stuff to 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 be successful as a developer advocate at least I'm, i'm definitely not the most talented engineer there ever was but but you know you've got to have some proficiency of course with being a developer but i think the the one of the the biggest aspects of it too that goes way beyond that is is being able to have a, a lot of empathy with people in general but but especially with developers out there because much of the role is understanding the issues that people come up across maybe even being able to see issues that exist without even being told explicitly what the issues are so like if people are frustrated with, with a product or frustrated with like a, an open source library something, what have you, it's great if you're able to sort of sense that without, you know, necessarily being told that there's an issue, right? I mean, you can go cruise through GitHub issues and see that there are problems with libraries, but being able to, to get a sense of that just through chatter online, and so not only that, but, but also being able to speak to that crowd in an empathetic way, being able to sort of communicate with them in, in ways that show that you, you. You know, you care for, for what they're going through. Uh, you care f- about the struggles that, that are happening and you, and you want to support them. I, I think that's a big part of it is like this desire to, to support people, to be successful in their endeavors with, uh, w- with whatever they're working on. So that's kind of like the, I, I suppose, like the, um, maybe I'd call it the emotional side of, of it, if you will. In terms of like the skills that go into it, I mean, it's a lot of stuff depending on what you're focusing on, but you know, it's a lot of it, like writing skills, um, doing talks. So being able to to give a, a public talk and also being able to do video stuff. Those three things, I see that those is, is some, some important key pillars of the job. And, you know, you wrap all that up and if you've got the kind of the interest in it, then you I think you've got a, a case for being a developer advocate. That's at least uh, one way that I look at it, but it's it's certainly multi- multifaceted. There's, there's different areas, I think, of specialization too. Yeah. One thing about it is that I think it, it's kind of unique too. It's a, it's a job that you, whoever is in the position of being a developer advocate, it's not like a cookie cutter role so much, right? Like it, it really relies on a lot of uniqueness that the individual brings to the to the table. At least that's what I've experienced myself.
2: To what I understand is you first worked with Angular and then moved to more React. And now you're with Prisma, that's more of a backend company. But one of the, the strides that, I've seen that kind of goes through all of them is security. Security is something that we all can struggle with sometimes to truly understand the scope of it and how important it is, and it can always always be put on the back burner to, you know, make better another day. Um, but it's 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 one of these things is what would you say if it was going to take in steps to go from a completely or open back end or unauthenticated front end. Is what would you say the first steps are to slowly make it more, more more secure almost like test coverage what's the most important thing to do first to make something more secure
0: sure yeah that's a great question you know you've got to look at the context of what you're building for sure so the question of like how do you start on making an endpoint let's let's just say an endpoint more secure depends on on what it's doing maybe there are two broad cases there are endpoints that you would want to limit access to so so that only say let's say authenticated users can can get access to them. And that's the case of, you know, an application that uses these endpoints uh where you have to be logged into the thing to make use of it. There's that bucket and then I think there's another bucket which is like you've got an open endpoint where it's a public API or or something like that. Um or, or otherwise, you just, you're just you calling that endpoint through an application where the user doesn't need to be logged in to use it. And so there are two ways that you might approach it to begin with. And I, so I think broadly, if you're taking the approach of the endpoint for a private application, you got to be logged in to use the thing. The first thing you need is um, a way to authenticate requests to that endpoint. And, and so what that looks like is you need to be able to tell something from the HTTP request that comes to that endpoint as to whether or not the user or you know service or, or whatever that's calling that endpoint should be allowed to get access to it. One of the easiest ways to think about this, this gets very broad, but one of the easiest ways to think about it is to, to think about like a user logs into an application and then they want to do some things in it that would make a call to those endpoints to get data back, let's say. Where you start with generally is you want to authenticate a user. You want to, yeah, you want to get a user to be authenticated in the application before they can do anything. So this is where it's it's good to look at the difference between authentication and authorization. So authentication is when the user comes to the application and they are able to prove that they are who they say they are. In a typical scenario, that would happen at some point in time, and then there would be some Kind of set up in place. This could be many things. It could be cookies and sessions, or JSON web tokens. There would be some something in place, such that requests to that endpoint would be authorized. So this is the other, the other uh, auth type. Is first you do authentication, and then you have to do authorization. Authorization is different because it is not the user. Proving that they are who they say they are every time they ask for information. Rather, it's the user supplying some kind of artifact along with their request, so that the endpoint can make a determination that the user is authorized to get access to that data. Let's say that's a typical setup with a user. You, you expand this out to, to various other um, scenarios where maybe it's like services that are making calls to another service. Like maybe you've got a backend that runs on a schedule and it needs to make requests from you know machine-to-machine communication. So it's not quite like a user calling a service, for example, but in any case, if you've got an endpoint that's protect, that needs to be protected, so that it only releases information to someone who's allowed to use it, you you, you kind of need to start there. If you're if you're taking the other bucket, where it's a public endpoint and you just want to kind of secure it, make it robust in some fashion. You start in a different direction, but this this direction also applies, I think, to the the private endpoints, once you get past that initial setup phase of of having authentication and authorization. In in this scenario, really what you wanna do is a few things. You want to make sure that your endpoints aren't going to be abused. So what does that look like? You could have people writing scripts that would just be pinging your endpoints endlessly, and so trying to carry out some kind of denial of service attack on you and you know there's lots of reasons why someone might do that it could be just because they don't like you or your application that's you know definitely one reason or it could be trying to disrupt your business um, so they like you're not going to succeed or whatever there could be for you know there's, there's plenty of reasons that people might want to do something like that
1: could be a foreign actor right
0: foreign actors yeah yeah like it could be political stuff it could be there's all sorts of reasons And it's a very real thing. This happens to people every day. There's no shortage of these kinds of attempts made. And so in those cases, what you're looking to do is uh, protect your endpoint in various ways. And one thing you might want to start with is rate limiting. And So rate limiting kind of looks at the number of incoming requests from a specific IP address, let's say, um, in a given time span. And if it exceeds some threshold, you'll want to start to deny those requests. So rate limiting helps you to, it kind of helps in the sense that you you'll not be giving up information from your API. If you've determined that the user is probably a bot or a bad actor or something, you can stop your API from releasing information to the, uh, to the user. One of the issues though, is that depending on how your rate limiting is set up, let's say it's set up just at your application level, you're still going to incur the cost of receiving and processing those requests, even though you, you've you put some kind of blockage in place. So kind of what you wanna do is really move that upstream. And so what you would wanna do is start to completely block, hopefully, you know, you've got a setup that can do this. If you're using like AWS, this is is fairly simple to do with with firewalls. Essentially what you wanna do is like, put some kind of web application firewall in place, something that can look at the incoming requests outside of your application layer and determine whether or not it should pass that request through to your endpoint. And so if you use like Cloudflare or AWS, you can deal with that traffic outside of your app. And if you want to bounce out that traffic, you can, and then your application layer doesn't need to process the request. So those, those are pretty big things that apply both to like public APIs. Yes. But also your private APIs too, even if you've got authentication in place, because like a a bad actor could get a, a token, which would allow them to authenticate at your API and. They could be trying to, you know, just get as much information as they can from that endpoint or something, and, and they could be sending plenty of requests that w- it would be unreasonable to expect that many requests from a, a regular user. You want to put that kind of protection in place there, too. Those are some of the broad things. Any more specific things you want to look at with those two, or what do you think?
2: Say you've got a public service that you want authenticated. For example, a checkout, you want the guest who hasn't logged in to be the only one to call the private APIs to obviously complete checkout, for example. How would you do that in your sense of uh, security? To me, it seems like the best way would first call an API to get a, a hash or a key. And then every time that user then calls them more private APIs, they would then ask for that hash. But I don't know.
0: So let's play this scenario out a bit. What's the So there's there's a private endpoint or set of private endpoints. What would those be responsible for?
2: take an e commerce example. So uh, you have a guest who's not authenticated, as in logged in, but they need to hit, say, private endpoints. That's like complete checkout, view order. Is this thing, how would you authenticate them on a private checkout if they've not done any authentication necessarily?
0: I guess it depends on your application's needs and everything. But like, you know, there, there's a couple of ways you could hit that And I've never implemented like a, this, this whole flow in myself. So I, I, I'm speculating here and this is just me thinking off the cuff as to how I might do this, but in a guest checkout scenario, I think typically what you want for an e-commerce setting is you want to have, you know, the cart, the shopping cart state be retained, even if like a, a user is to leave and then come back. So let's say they haven't authenticated because they don't have an account. They want to check out as a guest, they've got items in their cart. They close the browser tab They come back. We want to still show those. So a couple of ways to do that, right? You can keep some state in like local storage in browser storage. This is information that is not really private stuff, right? Like it's cart items aren't necessarily something, um, for the the most part that's it's gonna matter if somebody like has a cross-site scripting attack that's gonna like see what's in your local storage for that. That's a whole nother subject. Um, but in this case, probably not a bad idea um, to to have cart items in local storage. So you could maintain state that way. And then when you go to do the checkout, you know, I'm thinking of a typical flow. At checkout, if you're a guest, you've gotta provide your email address and your other stuff. And then when you go to pay, to me, just thinking, initially about this i don't i don't know if if buying purchasing is necessarily if that needs to be a private endpoint i think that's like um that's probably a public endpoint uh that takes in a payload with all your particulars from your form email address the items and price and all that stuff you'd want to protect that endpoint such that it can't be easily abused like you might want to have some kind of um Not necessarily like a a reCAPTCHA, but like a, you know, something that works to the same effect, something that can say, you know, this request came from a browser looks like it's a, it's a a legit user, not a bot trying to hit the, um, the endpoint with a fake credit card number or whatever. I mean, of course you're going to do your credit card processing and and verification and, and hopefully offload that to like Stripe so that they, you know, can, can determine if the card is legit or not. But yeah, to me, just thinking about it initially, I don't know if that's a private endpoint necessarily, the endpoint to purchase things.
2: And I think that brings it onto a really good security question is, what is defined as public and private? Because in my head, I would think that almost every mutation would be a private endpoint that needs authenticating. But what you're saying is, actually, some mutations are okay to be public mutations, like checkout.
0: Yeah, and that's because in this scenario, you know, we're we're accepting the fact that we're making this trade-off that says, we care more about people completing their purchases than we do about them having actual accounts with our service, therefore, let's treat this purchasing experience kind of like a contact form on your website, let's say. With your contact form, the endpoint that might be hit to submit that data isn't going to be a private endpoint, it's going to be public because there's no user session to speak of. So in that way, the guest checkout experience is kind of like just submitting data through a contact form. We're just accepting the fact that we're gonna get some user info, like their email address and their name. And in this case, instead of uh, like a, a message in the contact form, we're gonna get their credit card number, let's say. I think, you know, that's largely a public endpoint, but in, to so back to your question, what separates them? Like what's, pub- what's public and what's private? I think of private endpoints as ones where To start with, it's any kind of endpoint that would be hit when you build an application that should only be accessible by logged in users. So when we, when we want the user to have to be logged in to use it, basically it's like you want to prevent usage by just like random people. You want to, you want to be able to, to know who's using your thing and something that kind of gets like built in through that whole effect that gets like interwoven is the fact that like, when you hit an endpoint as a a logged in user, a private endpoint, most often you're going to need to supply like identity information about the user. So like a user ID to say, when I make a mutation, save it with this user ID or whatever. That's often going to need to be supplied along with your request. So you kind of have this like interwoven fact of of identity being part of like the private experience. In cases where you you don't care that the user is logged in, I think that's where you opt for the, the public thing roughly speaking i mean that's a generalization but that's that's kind of how i think about it
2: the reason we ask these security questions is because you've actually wrote your own course about security and react does it cover just the front end of security and react or does it also cover the back end
0: yeah back end too. its full stack yeah it's uh it basically shows you how you would deal with security in the full stack context and why it's when we're thinking about security and auth within like a React application, you kind of really need to involve the full stack to for it to to make sense.
1: And what is the backend in that course? Like, what database and what server are you using?
0: Yeah, it's uh, an Express uh, API, so Node, and it is a Mongo database that uh, that we use. This was pre Prisma that I made that course. So like nowadays, if I were to re-record it, I'd probably just like use Prisma on top of Postgres. That would be my what I'd go for. But um, yeah, it was. It was it was Mongo and so but the database you know it's it's really just kind of like a detail um, the, the the super important part that I draw out in the course is like when you think about your front end you've got to keep in mind that it is there's no there's no real concept of like security in a React application um, there are ways to there are ways to sort of like give hints that your users might be authenticated in your application but there's there's no way to know for sure and that's because react applications run in the browser or if you're doing react native they run in a mobile uh environment but the point about like browser-based application security um is that you need to involve a back end for security to make any sense at all because it's it's on the back end where any kind of determination about an authentication state for the user can be determined. That's that's the only place where where it makes sense to do that. You know, browsers are public clients, and they need to be treated as such. That you need to just expect that nothing can be trusted. Essentially, in the browser is what it comes down to.
2: Part of it's a free course, and then part of it's a more a paid course. It was done last year, so it's still quite relevant content till today. And also, obviously. What I probably understand is it's not necessarily about the frameworks or the databases it's using, it's the patterns that is what you mostly take away from it. One of my final security questions that I always think is interesting to know, how does one go about making API keys to give to people? You have a user, but now you've added an API to your service. How do you authenticate an API?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, and I think there's, there's kind of two patterns you see with this. Um, You'll find services. So let's say you're making an application. Part of it is an API, and you want third-party developers to be able to use your API to, you know, tie into your service somehow. So the typical way you could do it is you could have like uh, a spot in your your backend, uh, well, a spot within your user interface where it says, "Give me an API key because I want to tie into the service." So typically when you, when you get an API key like that, you've got like some kind of like app ID, let's say, which is supposed to be like a treated as public. And then you've got another thing, which is like your API secret or whatever. Sometimes they're just in one single key. Like it's, it doesn't have to be split out into two. And so with that, you know, that's typically the, the let's let's call it an API secret key or whatever, it's a long random string of characters uh you probably want to make sure it's url safe so you don't want to have like uh, certain symbols in there so you know typically people would just have letters and numbers give it a length of 64 characters you know uh make it random whatever hopefully use some kind of library which which helps gives you like a pseudo random generation
2: like nano id is one that i always see pop up
0: Nano ID? okay, I'm not familiar with that one, but something like that, where it's like, you know, it focuses on generating something that is approximating true randomness, because uh, for those unfamiliar, it's, it's actually very difficult, if not impossible, to actually produce random things with computers. So that's the idea. You just give a lot. And so what it becomes is like, it's just a super strong password essentially. Right. Your third party services calling into your API, you're, you're just relying on them Producing a really strong, unguessable password and then just sending you that password every time to authenticate. The other way to do it, which a lot of services use these days, is to have like a whole OAuth setup where, so a third party service would need to truly authenticate through it through the OAuth protocol with your API before it can actually get access to it. And this requires a lot of steps quite often. Like you have to initially get like a code, like if you're going through the code flow, they call it, like you have to get a code um and then you send that code to another endpoint to produce a token and then you have to store that token the token is only valid for a certain amount of time so you have to have a refresh token which is you're going to store somewhere and like refresh the access token and so there's it's a big complicated flow and some services make it stupidly like complicated to actually Uh, do what you want to do and one that i was frustrated with recently was uh the instagram graph api so i was looking to like just get like a like list of recent posts on instagram via the api and like figuring out actually how to do it through the facebook developers portal was just a nightmare anyway there are a lot of services that will do this much more easily for you but facebook is not one of them so you've got two sort of approaches i I think generally oauth you can consider that more secure because you have a proper authentication flow in place access tokens only have a certain lifetime etc tons of security things to think about in that scenario but um maybe arguably more secure than just like a, a super strong password which is the other variety
2: when you think about say a super strong password let's take stripe as just the example, one of the ones it gives you an SK key that, you know, is very secret, don't give to anyone, because it allows you to use Stripe. This is a question that I don't necessarily know, is when you make a key, is that key to a team normally, or is that key to a user as a JWT token? Because a JWT token and SK random letters are very different things that give you very different types of data back,
0: Yeah. And adjacent web token, like it, it extends beyond just like a thinking about a user as like a, you know, an actual person, like a human user. It also, you know, a JSON web token can be tied to like a machine that is making calls. It can get very, like very granular, even like it can be tied to certain, like a a given what's an example, like uh, tied to a a specific channel within a, a Slack organization, something like that. Right. So when you generate a key, I forget how it looks in Stripe. I, I haven't been in there in the developer spot in a while, but uh, I think generally for a lot of these services where you go in and you're like, hey, give me an API key, and I, I need to, to make a call to your API. It'll be for like an individual user of that application. Let's say you have some kind of like team login. Uh, I think it's gonna be the case where, so like, you know, all three of us, let's say we're on a developer team. We all use this service. We wanna get it to give us an API key we're probably all going to see that same API key if we log into that service and then we, any one of us could, could then copy it over to the spot that, it's need to, that it needs to go. Um, in that case, it's, it's more like an API key is going to be associated with like, like an application, I guess you could call it, or, or some kind of like a record of which you create within that, that application. You say, hey, I've got a th- third-party service. It's called Fubar application. We're going to have our users do this with it. I need an API key for it. That's kind of the model I think that most people go for.
2: Do you tend to see user authentication? A lot of people tend not to roll it themselves these days. They use, you know, Auth0, Netlify, even magic.links is a new one that's popping up a lot. But really like API keys, do you you tend to see that a lot of people would tend to just run their own system where it just keeps the key in the database? Or do they also use third-party services to generate them keys a lot?
0: Would that be the case if like you are creating an application and an API you want to enable third-party developers and you want to have some way to yeah that's interesting I yeah it's a good question I, I don't know of a service necessarily that would would do that I, so like I guess we, we have to look at both sides of it though like if you just want the super strong password variety I don't know of any services that are, are built just for that because I think it's such a, a small scope really like you need a library that's going to give you a good password, you need to follow best practices, et cetera. But if it's for the OAuth setup, that's actually what Auth0 like kind of specializes in. Like Auth0, a lot of people think about it as like, hey, I'm building an application, I need to give a way for my users to log in, so I'm gonna drop in Auth0, and that's definitely one way to use it. But like a whole other way, which maybe people get even more arguably would get more value from is Auth0 is a great way to say, hey, I've got an application and I want third-party developers to be able to make use of it. I need to provide the whole infrastructure and rules and all of that for people to be able to do the OAuth transactions that need to take place to allow them to hit my API. In that way, you you can set up your whole like third-party experience within Auth0. That's gonna solve that OAuth scenario for you, but for that, yeah, for the other scenario, I. at least the what I what comes to mind initially for me is like I just need to find a library that's going to give me pseudo random password generation.
2: It's always interesting to know these things because you know you're a developer in in a business and they go okay we're making this API how do you even think about the security? It's always such a hard question. Is you know where do you even go to read about these things? Stack Overflow, like well. It's interesting you bring up Zero as Zero is a lot more than just user logins because I think user logins are always the first thing everyone would do with OAuth. The other such an interesting co- subject is social logins and if you necessarily think they're good things or bad things because I always think they're a bit of both.
0: You think they're like good and bad?
2: So why what, what I say good, good and bad, I think like conversions tend to be higher because you know they just click login with Facebook or Google on public applications but then you're also losing a lot of that control when it comes to the structure and your login process as passwords and usernames and all the other things.
0: Definitely see the side where it's, it's good and bad. Um, you know the, the good points of social logins would come down to like you don't have to then build your own authentication stuff yourself you can you can defer defer to facebook or google or whatever and a lot of i think a lot of that is like the benefits there would be like you don't have to worry about your passwords getting breached you know that's that's a big thing um on the on the flip side though you it's like if you if you need to if you're going to do just like username and password authentication which i mean you probably I guess shouldn't in, in this day and age. Like there's there's not a great reason to, to solely support username and passwords uh, you should probably do something else the process of doing that yourself as long as you follow like the the best practices with it it can be decently secure like you know you need to make sure sure that you're hashing and salting your passwords and doing all that sort of stuff and there's libraries that you know depending on what framework you're in and what language you're in there's going to be libraries that'll do all that for you so it's not a big deal really I don't think to to do it uh, on your own so arguably more secure with social um, because you you offload all of that stuff to the provider. I think, you know, the the benefits to as, as an application developer of using social is you get like profile enrichment for your users. You need to ask them to consent to give you certain pieces of info, but as long as they do, you can build a, a bigger picture of your, your users and be able to, you know, I don't know, sell them things more easily. I, I don't know, something like that. So there's that. And then I guess the, the downsides for me would be like, I don't know people don't people don't really like some social providers these days of course Facebook comes top my mind but I think I think I don't know if trust is being lost in in a lot of them like I don't know if you'd find anyone that is wary of like logging in with Google because you know they're upset at Google for something or or another but I don't know maybe maybe it is a thing I'm not sure I I don't have a, a lot of the pulse on that I, I i do know that like because i'm not a big fan of facebook like i if given the option i will generally never log in with facebook
1: i think you'll find people who feel the feel the same way about google or feel the same way about facebook or feel the same way about both of them so it kind of depends person to person but um, while we still got you here i really want to get into some prisma stuff so let's kind of close this out um is there anything else you want to hit on that bernsey are you good
2: just a hot take uh it's a yes or no passwordless login to future
0: in some form, I think so. I'm really keen on uh, web authentication, uh, where you use like a fingerprint reader and you're immediately logged into a website.
1: Yeah, if you think someone's afraid to give Facebook their password, imagine giving Facebook your, your fingerprint.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you wouldn't give it to, through Facebook.
2: The user doesn't know that, though. They don't know the difference.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see.
2: It's a super new thing. Yep, super new. It's still behind a lot of Chrome flags as well. But in, in all essence... What it is, is you type in your email address and then click, like, the fingerprint icon and then put your finger on the fingerprint scanner and now you're logged in. Obviously, super new technology that's still in development. So yeah, Prisma.
1: Let's talk a little bit about just what Prisma is, first of all. I think a lot of our listeners are already going to know it's really a a key pillar of FS Jam, but I'd be curious to hear how you describe it today because you guys have been a bit fluid in how you
0: describe it yeah for sure we've, we've kind of reverted back in our description of it because uh, we used to call it an orm and then there was i guess reason to maybe not call it an orm just based on some technical details i suppose of, of prisma but what we came to a realization of is that it's an uphill battle to try to um you know describe something to someone in terms that they're not familiar with
1: when you were at the, the Redwood meetup, actually, I had asked you, when is Prisma going to admit that they built an ORM?
0: There you go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs>
1: at that point, you hadn't done it yet. And you hadn't made the switch yet, but I, I was sensing it. I was sensing it was in the air. We made the admission.
0: Yeah, so Prisma is uh, an open source ORM that gives developers a really clean API, a really clean way to access databases. Right now, at the time of this recording, it's all relational databases. Uh, so there's Postgres, MySQL, MS SQL, SQLite. I think I might be missing one, but I'm not sure. But the support for uh, Mongo is on the way. It's, it's on the roadmap and it's actively being worked on. And so what does that look like? What does that translate to? It's like, if you want to access a database from a backend, let's uh, say in Node, uh, currently we support Node and Go. But if you want to do it in node, um, instead of writing raw SQL queries, like select star from table where, et cetera, instead of doing that, you'll go through Prisma, which is basically you write a bit of code to do that. And the way that that looks is that you start with a model. You start with a Prisma model. So Prisma not only gives you like this API for accessing your data, it gives you all the tools you need for managing your databases in the first place. The Prisma model gives you a way to describe your tables in your database. And then we have products like uh, Prisma Migrate, which allows you to run migrations on your database, put your tables in place, uh, seed them with data if you want, And then we've got other stuff like Prism Studio, which allows you to view your database. It's like a, you know, it's like a table plus alternative, for example, runs in the browser or in a, uh, an Electron app. We, we've got really intelligent things that surround all of that. Like IntelliSense, it's all TypeScript. You get type generated TypeScript types, which means that your database access is type safe. And what that translates to, the, the reason I really like that is that it becomes very difficult to do something with your database that is invalid. Um, so the, uh, at the time that you write your code, you can be pretty certain that what, what what your code is trying to do with your database is something that is sound because the TypeScript types that get generated will prevent you from doing the wrong thing.
1: And then something else I find interesting about that is I've noticed that when you have Prisma, like you say, because of the TypeScript, and then you also have a GraphQL API, because that is basically defining types is kind of what that's doing, you are able to write JavaScript and get a lot of the same benefits you would get from writing TypeScript without necessarily having to do it. I find you still get a lot of the same autocomplete and you still get a lot of the same errors. And I find that to be pretty interesting because there's you know this whole tension between how deep we go into TypeScript or, or not. And so I like how we've set up, at least I've gotten to a place where I can have tooling that allows me to get a lot of the benefits from TypeScript without really having to write TypeScript.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's that's an interesting debate right now. TypeScript, of course, is like really taking off, but there are de- developers that are sticking with JavaScript. And one thing I, I've seen recently is that some library authors are actually reverting from TypeScript to JavaScript and just using JS Doc to get auto completion.
1: Right. Rich Harris was talking about this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You saw that. Yeah. It's interesting. I guess there you know there's some overhead with with TypeScript that people don't want to to deal with, which is uh, of course, fine. But I, I was curious. I was interesting to. See, it was interesting to see that people are going from TypeScript back to JavaScript. I wouldn't have expected that necessarily.
1: Yeah, you're big into TypeScript. You've done. Uh, you did a really great TypeScript pocket guide that we'll link to in the show notes. I, I got a lot of value out of that first, So thanks for writing that.
0: <laughs> you bet. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. What's the story with uh, TypeScript in Redwood these days? I remember talking to uh, to the guys a while ago, and it was on the way. Um, but any, any movement there?
1: Yeah, I think we just got a lot of the router stuff in there, I think is what we're working on. Chris will will be closer to the ground on this. I know it's being worked on, but we're still not across the finish line yet.
2: It's currently in a middle period where it was working for me on 23. 24 got the router rewrote. It broken for me, so I can't upgrade to 24 right now. But there's fixes lined up for 25 after pre-rendering's been added, because obviously that does a lot with obviously the routing and how that all works really. So. It's got a lot better in the, the month since. If you're wondering, the easiest way to see the, the how, how it's all going is the roadmap. I think it's redwoodjs.com slash roadmap. And it says where all the states are and TypeScript's one of them, where it says how far along it is.
0: Nice, that's cool, yeah. Um. I, I think a lot of people starting projects these days have it in mind that at least if they've got experience with TypeScript, that they probably wouldn't do a JavaScript project. I mean, that's the case for me anyway. Like if I'm starting a new project, it's going to be TypeScript all the way down, largely because I know the benefits I can get from it, but also the fact that, you know, because TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript, if I really don't want to deal with types, I don't necessarily have to, I can just kind of go on my way. And I know there's some limitations to working with TypeScript. It's a little bit more overhead and whatever, but for me, it's worked out well. You know, I, I think my, my development has improved for sure. The time it takes to to write something and get it like working as it should be is is much reduced I think because I catch so many things ahead of time.
1: What else do you think is going to be coming up this year for Prisma that you're looking forward to? You had mentioned Mongo support and it sounds like Migrate is getting to a to a good place as well so you can speak to either of those or anything else that's that's going on.
0: Yeah I'm excited for basically like the the final sort of general availability of all the pieces getting everything to general availability is going to be awesome um i think it's going to give people um even more confidence that like yep all the core pieces are there they're ready to go um i you know don't have to worry about regressions and whatnot one of the challenges is that like prisma one for those unfamiliar prisma one was like this hosted kind of graph well it, it was self-hosted it, so anyway let's take it all the way back graph cool was the initial incarnation of what is now prisma that was like a hosted graphql service your database would be hosted you were and then a a graphql api would be produced for you to easily get uh, into your database etc prisma 1 evolved to be something that you host yourself but you get a graphql api and now prisma 2 is totally graphql agnostic it's not concerned with what your api implementation is it's just like a tools and uh, like I was mentioning earlier, this ORM that sits on top of your database, which makes working with databases way easier. And that's where the key value comes in. So all that to say, there's this issue that it developed over the course of time where people have been a little bit burnt by. Prisma making such drastic changes to the product and changing directions a bit. I think now the people on Prisma 2 who really like it, once these general availability pieces stick in place, it's gonna be like, okay, yeah, I feel really, really good about this. Nothing's gonna change so substantially that it'll you know wipe out my project. I think people will be uh, will be super excited about that. So I, I'm stoked on that. And I think seeing what comes out of the developments around uh, the commercial product offerings that are kind of taking place right now. There's you know um, right now everything is is kind of open source, but but the, the actual strategy um, and and commercial product side of things is in the works right now.
1: Do you have any speculation in that area of what direction you guys are at least thinking about? I know Jason has said that this is something that's still very new and exploratory right now. But I'm curious at least what what you're thinking.
2: There is one that's on the public roadmap, and that's a hosted version of Studio. Yeah, and
0: that's I think that's what I can speak to mostly is the uh, the hosted experience. Um, so Studio on the roadmap being something that people will benefit from. I think there's not not a whole lot else I can say right now, but but we can basically say building on the things that make Prisma awesome right now will be things that make working with databases in in Teams and and in settings where where there's a lot of data will be will be really good it'll be it'll make for for ease of use for developers working on large data sets and stuff like that
1: yeah that's what jason had said as well he was talking about like the workflows around databases which we've had guests on the show like chris ball has talked about issues he's he's had with this and so yeah there's definitely a huge space and this is kind of similar to what peter peter pastorius is working on as well so making it easier to work with databases, I think is definitely something that a lot of people are are looking for. So that'll be exciting to see that.
2: The provider I'm more interested in for Prisma is actually CockroachDB, the Mongo, because at one point in the future, my application will need to be hosted worldwide. And thinking about having to manage multiple versions of Postgres. Cockroach just seems to have that down from their marketing page.
0: Yep. The one I'm keen on myself personally is DynamoDB. I've just gotten uh, into that and it's really cool. And same benefits, right? Like you just create it within AWS and you've got like global support. Don't have to scale anything. It's Awesome.
1: Yeah. If Prisma could start supporting DynamoDB, that could be huge.
0: Do you like Dynamo? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I like Dynamo and I'm trying to get Redwood into a state where it could be entirely hosted just on AWS, like with the database. Because that's the thing that we don't really have right now is we can do... All this stuff with Netlify, or Vercel, which is all building on AWS, but that's still really more so the front end. And then we have the back end, which we usually would pull in, like, a Postgres database on Heroku or something like that. So I'm looking at things like Begin and, you know, SAM and that sort of stuff and trying to figure out how to get Redwood in some sort of, like, infrastructure's code setup that can be deployed just to AWS. And so getting the dyno piece is really important, unless we want to use something like Aurora or RDS or the, the more relational offerings.
2: So what you want is, if I remember rightly, a mega CloudFront file that basically sets up AWS for you, is it? Is it CloudFront?
1: Well, that's what Begin and Sam are. Begin and Sam are both syntactic sugar on top of CloudFront. So yeah, that's, that's the idea.
2: Okay. No, I guess that's it. Um, thank you for your time. How can our listeners find you?
1: Sure, yeah, you can find
0: me on Twitter. That's where I'm kind of most active. Ryan Chenke on Twitter. And I'm sure you will probably put that as a link. And yeah, check out, if you're interested in the security stuff that we're talking about, uh, reactsecurity.io is where you'll find details on that. Uh, there's a free course there and some pro courses too.
2: And you also have your own podcast?
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, So if you're interested in like business stuff, um, especially like indie hacking and and stuff like that, uh, the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast is the one I host. Uh, The website is easypodcast.io. Yeah, I chat with like developers who are all, you know, building side businesses or releasing books and courses and stuff like that. And getting to know what methods they go through to release products and and do cool stuff.
2: Your latest one was Justin Jackson, who built Transistor.fm
0: so he was man he was one of the early guests so maybe you saw a recent tweet i uh, i've got some twitter activity going where i i just like retweet like older episodes i yeah he was like last year or even the year before maybe so anyway that was a great episode though he yeah he builds transistor which is the platform that i use for hosting we
2: do too oh
0: nice
2: everybody does (laughs) what only the cool podcasts do that's right um yeah that's it uh thank you for your time
0: yeah thank you guys really good to talk to you have a good one Awesome.